0: Welcome back to What We Owe, our two-part podcast created by Columbia College Chicago students Adi M. Woldu and Brie Ramirez. Funding for this series is made possible by a grant from the Council of Independent Colleges, Humanities Research for the Public Good. What We Owe is drawn from oral history interviews in the Chicago Anti-Apartheid Movement Archival Collections which are held at Columbia College Chicago. This is What We Owe. Part two opens with the narrator's activist origin stories and challenges the movement faced. It closes with students Adium and Bree asking the listeners to think about what we owe.
1: known about how Chicago activists reckoned with their own internal and interpersonal racial conflicts. No one would assume that a movement to end oppression across the globe was also an act of dealing with tensions within their own community. Why did you join? Uh,
2: I became an activist because um, in looking at um, Jim Crow in the South and looking at um, apartheid And one of the reasons I really, really decided that the Army wasn't for me was because I experienced some of the same stuff in the military.
3: Because even though we all were very aware of what was, you know, really a kind of system of apartheid in the United States, because, you know, I mean, as I was growing up, there were places where black people could not legally go. You know, when my first son was born in 1968, there were still 16 states in which blacks and whites could not legally marry. So it isn't like we were not aware, you know, and there were signs all over the South, you know, colored, you know, and white and so forth, just like, you know, in South Africa. Um, but looking at the situation in South Africa where... Uh, the level of oppression and the level of conditions in a majority population in their own country, you know, uh, was just astounding to me. And and that was one of the things that got me really interested in African history and was one of the reasons that when I, I went to school, I decided to major in history, and then when I got my PhD, I decided to do African history. So, you know, we raised funds, we educated people, we used to, you know, teach on Saturdays, you know, younger students and, you know, educate them about what was going on. Um, there also were, you know, African solidarity events that happened in New York frequently. Um, I began to read a lot of African literature. But there were African solidarity events, you know, that people went to that you supported in that kind of a way. So there wasn't a a formal organization that I belonged to that was only anti-apartheid, but even in the civil rights movement and the organizations that I worked with in the civil rights movement, the organizations that I worked with in the women's movement, and the black power organizations. You know, um, not only were people talking about civil rights of people of color in the United States, but all over the world, and certainly South Africa was was just a major place. I remember in the 60s when we were boycotting uh, lobster tails from South Africa.
4: Came here at times, I would be upset because in South Africa, you know, it was the law here, it was not the law. And people would tell, Oh, no, we racism is dead in America, everybody can do everything. And the minute, like I said, the minute I open my mouth, the minute people see my hair, the minute I have different needs, uh, you would know, you would know, and it hurts because people say anything is possible in America. It is not. And those people, I work with someone who denies there's racism and maintains that sometimes minorities exaggerate. It's just that the person who exercises um, racism is incompetent anyway. That's amazing to me that they could be racist. Uh, they could be incompetent only with minorities and not incompetent with other people. So, can you
1: describe any sort of tension you found in between activist groups? Like-
3: it was a, a whole group of people, um, blacks and whites, uh, which was very interesting because. Even though Chicago had a long history of African solidarity work, uh anti-apartheid work, civil rights work, you know, Chicago was had a. I uh I mean of course there were many people in Chicago who were not progressive, but they had a strong progressive community here. Uh still often that community was divided along, you know, racial lines, uh, even though they sometimes worked together uh, and you know, SIDSA was actually founded by a multi group of people.
5: Um, we were very much aligned with the African National Congress, um, and both in spirit and uh, their commitment to non-racial, uh, racialism and there always were conflicts there and here between that, those movements and the more black liberation movements, which were more committed to. Um, in, uh, to black controlled liberation, black controlled power. but so we, uh, we we understood the importance of leadership and image and um, and the reality of power within those relationships. That was one of the things One of the things we all learned a lot about working together in a multiracial way that was respectful of the needs of. Uh, African-Americans to uh, have power and, not, and for whites to step back and, and um, be supportive and learn to follow sometimes. Those were very important. So the African National Congress had mirrored that. That's what, that's what I'm saying. There was, there was a mirror of that. There were always white leaders in the African National Congress, even though they totally understood
6: the importance of those racial dynamics. I think that probably, I mean, let, let me let me let me put this simply clearly. In the period from 1971 or 72 to about 1994, 95, with the final kind of disillusion dis- dis- dissolving of the last anti-apartheid. one of the biggest challenges the anti-apartheid movement had was to get beyond race. Mm. Within itself. In itself. Within itself. Uh, There was a period from 72 to about 80, maybe even 85, when there were two anti-apartheid movements here in Chicago. There was the Mm. Chicago Committee for the Liberation of Angola, Mozambique, and Guinea which then also, in 83, becomes SIDSA, the Coalition for Illinois Divestment from South Africa. And coinciding with the Chicago Committee for the Liberation of Angola, Mozambique, and Guinea was the African-American Solidarity Committee, which was a south-side, more left political formation, that I belonged to both. Now, I was the only one who belonged to both. Mm-hmm. The one the Chicago Committee for Liberation of Angola, Mozambique, and Guinea was North Side based. The African Liberation S- Solidarity Committee, which was founded incidentally by Lisa Brock's husband, was predominantly black and on the South Side. African visitors to both meetings. You know we. We'd have one meeting on the Friday evening uh, at Northwestern let's say that would be sponsored by the North Side group. And they were largely white or mixed or the one on the north side was predominantly white. Okay. I was at, certainly in the very beginning years I was the only black person in it. Oh okay. uh, Later I think there were other one or two other black people it. The one on the south side, had no white people in it. And it had about the same, they had about the same number of members. Both were small. And I used to just think, this is so stupid. Because they could have been more of a combined force. But arguing against this was people who said, but we have to have, to work with the realities that we live in. And the reality of the segregation of the city of Chicago means that we cannot function as a multiracial organization
0: because you could make the argument as well if we're working on the realities of the situation we live in that we got to work with the white guys <laughs>
6: <That's> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean
0: I, it's interesting that that could be
6: argued both, both and sides, I think you know? that through time the group that ultimately prevails is a multiracial formation and that is the Chicago Committee, uh, CISA, the Chicago Coalition for Illinois Divestment from South Africa, which then becomes CISA, the -hmm. Chicago Committee in Solidarity with Southern Africa, CCISSA. (coughs) And both those formations, SIDSA and CISA, uh, are multiracial, but with black leadership. The stipulation was that there'd have to be black leadership.
1: The process of achieving social change must involve a personal reckoning with tough personal conflicts. In spite of these difficulties, these activists are proud of their achievements and understand the struggle still continues.
7: What did you learn from your involvement in the movement? How has being active in the movement changed your life?
3: ...to keep yourself educated. And, um, you know, it's difficult in this country to be, to be educated. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but this is a place that, honestly, even though we're one of the most industrialized nations in the world, um, I find people are, at least in my travels and my experience, the least knowledgeable about things that happen outside of this country. It's just amazing to me. I can go into a village in in Nigeria and find people who know more about what's going on in the rest of the world than people who have college degrees, you know, in the United States. So you have to hunt information in the United States. You can't, if you listen to the 6 o'clock news or the, you know, you are going to hear more about the latest fire on the west side. Then you're going to hear about what's going on in the world. So you have to listen to the BBC. You have to, you know, read the international Tribune. You have to really hunt, you know, information. I mean, in those days there was no internet. You know, so you didn't just go on the internet and find things. Now, of course, criticism sessions. That is, that once you had gone out on a uh, a protest or some particular kind of action, then people would get back together, whether it was after getting out of jail or you know leaving the protest. And debrief. You know what went right, what went wrong. You know what should we do differently next time. You know where do we go from here? So it was a whole sort of criticism and self-criticism session. So you know we also it it's very important, particularly in dealing with an issue like apartheid, to make sure that you are in contact with people who are there. You know, and that you're not just here. You know. Um, Trying to educate yourself, deciding what you should do, and making stuff up—you <laughs> know—I mean, you need to be in contact with people who are on the front line. You know, you need to be in contact with people who are in the organizations and leading the organizations that you know have the reality check of what's going on on the ground. So, another thing that I think we took great care to do um, in the 1980s in the anti-apartheid struggle was to make sure that that we hosted people. Who were either from South Africa, living in South Africa, or people who had been were in exile, but who were in contact with people in South Africa, who were the leaders of the movement there, um, because we had to, in some ways, take our cue from them, you know, and we had to know what the reality was on the ground. So that was another way of educating ourselves, really. And of course, people used to to travel to, uh, you know, outside of this country to uh, go and visit with other anti-apartheid movements, etc. Now, you know, I.
4: Struggle is fought at different fronts. It is not fought from one street corner. Other people bake bread and feed the protesters. Others uh, teach them. Others sew clothes. So there was always that division of labor that was understood. For instance, some people were against shibins, but that's where ideas were discussed. That's where money changed hands. That's where trips were planned. So everybody uh, played a part. And do you know what a shibin is? A shibin is sort of a private tavern. You can have a shibin at your house. They were illegal. We had no outlets. We had no ways uh, of uh, entertaining people. So in the evening, everybody would, let's say, come to your house and you would sell
2: liquor. Um, I'm not as angry as I was. Um, I'm very, very pleased with the um, the way I carry myself as a human, uh, which is something that um, I think um, allowed me to uh, read more and to understand that um, it's for a for, 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 uh, peace of mind. It's to look at uh, the world as it is and to be able to uh, interpret it and um, understand. Uh, not that you're gonna go out there and change it overnight. It's something that um, has driven a lot of people to an uh, early grade. Um, it's one thing to see it. And it's another thing to understand just how much of it you can change. And it's like uh, in a classroom, um, especially with uh, a bunch of uh, middle school students, you have to pick and choose your fights. And you have to be very uh, strategic in doing it because if you, for lack of a better phrase, if you shoot from the hip, you you may not get the uh, effect that you want. So you, you have to really, really be careful with it, and um, me being uh, an activist over the years has sort of allowed me to understand that just because it's true, doesn't mean that you can make it happen, you know, overnight. I mean, truth, yeah, there's a lot of truths out there, but um, just as there are people who are um, fighting for the truth, you know, there you are know, a lot of crooks in the world. and just as crooked knives ever have been so you have to really really be careful you really do.
1: in the early 1990s the apartheid regime was abolished through a series of steps that led to the election of nelson mandela and the instatement of his party the african national congress
7: This was achieved through shared efforts and difficult confrontations about social issues, both at home and abroad. Today, with a global pandemic, racial upheaval, issues with public access to healthcare, and increasing wealth disparities, a contempt for established power is stronger than ever, and people from all walks of life grow more and more active in the charge for
1: social change. However, the trust between Americans is dwindling. In 2018, a study conducted by the Pew Research Center with over 10,000 adults from the United States, 64% believed that Americans' trust in each other had been shrinking. And although his study was conducted in 2018, we can still resonate with the lack of certainty when we look at, for example, protests over mask-wearing protocols and control corporate CEOs have over public policies, the vicious machine of social media, today we're less than certain that people will act in the best interest of the majority. How do
7: we combat this distrust today? When we turn to Chicago anti-apartheid activists, we can see this work of trust building in attending meetings, driving people to protests and rallies, and organizing events.
1: So the question of what we owe might turn into a question of how we learn to work through our differences and create substantial change. In turning to the stories from the Chicago activists, we can consider an organization like CIDSA, Committee of Illinois Divestment in South Africa, a multiracial organization with Black leadership as an example of listening to the disenfranchised while still being an equal contributor to anti-racist work.
7: In short, maybe a sort of answer to this question of what we owe is found in the nitty gritty work of organizational life forming community, directing our energies towards a collective effort, doing the work with both a purpose and interest in the people.
1: Finding which front from which we'll fight in the struggle.
0: Thank you for listening to What We Owe. This series is made possible through the collaboration between Archives and Special Collections and the office of the provost at Columbia College Chicago, as well as the Chicago Cultural Alliance and the Council of Independent Colleges. Thanks to Jake Alinar, production intern for WCRX-FM, for producing this episode. I'm Erin McCarthy. Thanks for listening.